Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. This will be our Old Testament reading. Picking up a familiar place in the middle of the story of Elijah after his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, but now after he has fled from the vengeful wrath of Jezebel, the queen. 1 Kings 19, verse 9 says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 18. We're going to read just verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there 
and went to the house of a man called Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Amen. And you may be seated. John Payton was a well-known missionary in the 1800s to the New Hebrides Islanders. This is in the Pacific Ocean uh, to the east of Australia. And it was, at times, quite dangerous work. Uh, He recounts um, in his autobiography one particular occasion when he was confronted by a threatening ring of islanders who had gathered around him and his companions. He says, they encircled us in a deadly ring, and one kept urging another to strike the first blow or fire the first shot. He says, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal Till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me, he says, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. Amen. I uh, found that long, longer quote in a, a web article by somebody else. You can find the whole autobiography online if you want to read the context. Um, but I want to draw your attention to that line in the middle, which I've quoted before. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. Uh, actually, in the century prior, uh, George Whitfield said something very similar to a friend in poor health. In a letter he wrote, he tells his friend about his own severe health struggles during his own ministry, uh, but he encourages this friend. He says, fear not your weak body. We are immortal till our work is done. 
fulfilled, says, Christ's laborers must live by miracle. If not, I must not live at all. It makes you wonder if maybe John Payton had heard about what Whitfield wrote or if they both got the idea from somewhere else. But it's an enduring legacy for us as the people of God to remember that we are indeed immortal till the work God has for us has been completed. And what I do know for sure is that both of those men had certainly read and loved this passage where the Apostle Paul receives a similar reassurance direct from the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage in three parts this morning. First, Christ provides, verses 1 through 6. Second, Christ protects, verses 7 through 11. And third, Christ prevails, verses 12 to 17. So Christ provides, Christ protects, and Christ prevails. First, Christ provides. And to begin with, we can see how Christ provides Paul with fellowship and encouragement and help in what turns out to be a pretty remarkable, very providential way at just the right time when Paul needed those things the most. Um, To understand why this connection that he makes with Aquila and Priscilla is so meaningful at this time in Paul's life, it, it helps if we turn to Paul's Corinthian letters. So at this point in chapter 18, Paul has just left Athens and made his way westward a little ways to Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a major city on the coast of Greece. You can find it on a map. It's on the, the they call it an isthmus, the little spit of land that connects um, the body of land where Athens is to the body of land where Sparta is. And there's a thin piece of land there. And so it was a very strategic location a a, uh, seaside city. Um, John Stott helpfully puts it like this. He says that if Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world, then Corinth was a great commercial center, a world-famous emporium, he says. Uh, Another commentator, Daryl Bach, goes so far as to call it the Las Vegas of its time, and that's primarily because of its reputation for debauchery. Uh, the chief goddess there was Athena. Oh, sorry, was Aphrodite or Venus. And Athens, it was Athena. So there's a difference in the kind of cultures of the city because of the gods that they saw as primary for them. Um, Las Vegas be an okay comparison. I think we could just as easily, though, compare it to an, an, a New York City as well because of the commerce and trade and the great wealth and decadence and a huge size of this city by ancient standards. Um, And later, after this time, when Paul writes um, those letters back to this city, back to the Christians here in Corinth, he gives us some key insight into what things were like for him when he first arrived there from Athens in chapter 18, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Could be this had something to do with his physical condition. Talks about problems with his health in 2 Corinthians, which is the thorn in the flesh and so on. Uh, But also, don't forget everything that Paul has been through on this second journey. In Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, people 
constantly trying to kill him, or at least uh, stir up opposition, get him in trouble with the authorities, run him out of town after town. Also, don't forget that Silas and Timothy, his ministry partners on this trip, um, were still back in Macedonia. And so he was shorthanded, possibly quite lonely in the ministry. And so in any case, for whatever combination of reasons, Paul's ministry in Corinth was characterized by weakness, fear, and much trembling. So just imagine what a sweet gift from the Lord Jesus it must have been for him to run into this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, recently come from Italy, it says, because Claudius, it's the Emperor Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, that statement's uh, especially intriguing because uh, that expulsion of the Jews from Rome is also mentioned by the early Roman historian Suetonius. Um, And listen to what he says in his Life of Claudius. He says, as the Jews, this this is Suetonius, the historian, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Now, obviously, Suetonius is a little bit mixed up on the details, but uh, many scholars agree that this is a pretty clear reference to Christianity, to Christ. Um, It's only that it's the message of Christ rather than uh, Christ himself physically in person there in Rome uh, that caused these disturbances among the Jews. You remember that the message of Jesus reached the city of Rome long before Paul did. There were visitors from Rome even present at the day of Pentecost, uh, Jewish pilgrims to the city. Um, And Paul, of course, later writes the letter of Romans to a church that already exists there. Um, It seems that when the gospel came, it caused just as much upheaval among the Jewish community in Rome as it did in Paul's ministry in the cities of Asia Minor in Greece. And so eventually... Those public disturbances became so severe that the Emperor Claudius just said, all of you just leave. You cannot be here anymore because your internal disagreements are causing chaos for the city. Uh, And Priscilla and Aquila were among those ethnic Jews who had to leave the city of Rome. This was the year A.D. 49. Uh, And it's interesting, it's not unreasonable to think that uh, they may have actually been Christians already by the time they left Rome. Uh, before they met Paul here in Corinth. And um, that's a pretty good inference, partly because Luke doesn't mention them being converted under Paul's ministry. And if that educated guess is the case, just imagine for Paul how encouraging that would have been to meet these Christians from across the empire. And the Lord has now brought them together in this place when he most needed refreshment, friendship, companionship, fellowship, and help. And then imagine even further, he finds out we have skills for the same trade, so we can work together, we can stay together, we can uh, have uh, our lives intermingled in this way that the Lord is, is providing for us all. And it's just remarkable to see here how King Jesus has been providentially orchestrating things across so many miles and so many years to bring these particular people together for the sake of the gospel in this particular city at this particular time. 
in Corinth. It is not an accident. And I want to remind you that neither are the friendships, fellowship that God has given to you, the providential circumstances that God has arranged for you. None of it is an accident. And thinking about this congregation, we have to understand, God has put us in this place, Center County, Pennsylvania, at this time, this third decade of the 21st century, many years later than this, he's put us with these people. You look to your left and right and around you and you see. And he's done that just as carefully, just as specifically, just as deliberately as he put together Priscilla and Aquila with the Apostle Paul. And we also have to understand that he has work for us under those circumstances, just as he had for them. And he's going to provide for us just as he provided for them to see that work accomplished because our Lord Jesus Christ is a Christ who provides for his people in ways we never could have planned or imagined. Look at how else Christ, uh, God, Christ provides for Paul in verse 5 when at last Silas and Timothy uh, arrive from Macedonia. Uh, once again, we have to do some reading between the lines here on the basis of Paul's letters. In 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul is writing to this church about how he didn't ask them for any financial support. Uh, from the, uh, uh, at first, of course, he supported himself by making tents, apparently, with Priscilla and Aquila. But then he says that later, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That It seems, uh, we know this from Philippians 2, that the Philippian church, Lydia and the Philippian jailer and the others there, had uh, sent some financial support along with Timothy and Silas. And once they arrived in Corinth, that financial support then freed Paul up to occupy himself, verse 5 says, more fully with the word. Uh, the NIV translation reflects that understanding of, of this verse very clearly when it says it like this. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Why? Because uh, that financial support had freed him up uh, not to have to make uh, tents full-time. Now he could preach the word full-time. And so you see how Christ is providing here for Paul's Corinthian ministry on every level. Paul arrives there in weakness and fear and much trembling, but Jesus sees to it, right, that he has this perfect couple to befriend him, to give him work to do, and then, and then he works in the hearts of a church leagues away to the north to bring the financial means for Paul to be able to throw him into gospel proclamation in this city with all of his energy and all of his time. Now, the early returns... Uh, here in Corinth, don't look very promising. Um, as in so many other places that Paul has been, the Jewish community in this city too, for the most part, reject the message of Jesus. In fact, it says that they opposed and reviled Paul, uh, just as their counterparts in Jerusalem opposed and reviled Jesus. And so, as usual, Paul shifts his focus of ministry from the synagogue to the Gentile population, the rest of the city. When he says, your blood be on your own heads, it should remind us of 
when God commissions Ezekiel to be a prophet, and he tells him basically, Ezekiel, um, you're a watchman, and if you fail to carry out your prophetic task as a watchman for Israel, you'll bear the responsibility for the people who are lost as a result. But, on the other hand, if you faithfully proclaim the message, you lay it out there for them, and they still ignore you, well, then that is their responsibility. You have fulfilled your mission. They're responsible for the consequences. The apostles in the book of Acts are carrying on that prophetic task of bearing God's word to the people of God. The church today is continuing to carry on that task as we proclaim the scriptures. You can imagine, perhaps, how Paul might have felt at this juncture. For all of the, uh, the boldness of this very dramatic gesture of shaking the dust of the synagogue off of his garments as he leaves it behind and so on, uh, surely a part of Paul must have been thinking inwardly, oh, no, here we, here we go again. They're going to run me out of town, assuming they don't try to kill me first. Of course, it's not all bad news, um, In fact, one person who did listen to Paul was actually the synagogue's leader named Crispus. But think about what that would have meant for Crispus. Imagine the sacrifice that would have been for him, going from this position of prominence and respect from his community now to sharing the same rejection and reviling that Paul was facing. We soon find out that in Christ's plan, Things are going to be different in Corinth than we've seen so far on this missionary journey. This this, uh, Christ makes plain in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. This is really the heart of this passage, and in it you can hear the the vigor, the strength that Jesus is conveying to his apostle, giving him this promise, Paul, no one is going to harm you here in Corinth. In this place you are going to be free to preach and disciple unhindered. So go for it, Paul, go for it. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Make the most of this opportunity this open door that I'm setting before you for the word. I love that last reason that Jesus gives in particular when he says, for I have many in this city who are my people. And it reminds me of that passage we read earlier uh, from the life of Elijah, where Elijah is telling the Lord, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord says, no, no, no. I can see what you cannot at this moment. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. I almost wonder if Paul would have recalled that same Elijah story when he heard this promise from Jesus. He later quotes that story in Romans chapter 11. He might also have called to mind... The other disciples report of Jesus' promise, recorded in the Gospel of John, when Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. See, Jesus hasn't sent Paul out hoping that 
maybe some people will respond to the message that he's given him. The Lord Jesus knows exactly who he's planning to reach with that message. And the Lord Jesus is not going to rest until every single one of them has come to faith in him. You see, they are his people already, even though they don't know it yet. They have been, in fact, since before the creation of the world. In his eternal plan, he set his saving purpose on them, his saving love from eternity past. And nothing and no one is going to stand in the way of his determination to save these people in the living present of their lives now through faith in the gospel promises. What better news could Paul have heard? What better reason for boldness and fearlessness in the cause of the gospel could Jesus have given him? Come back to that in a little while. Now, in the following verses, uh, Paul's confidence in that promise of Jesus gets tested, right? Uh, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. But in the end, you see how this actually becomes an occasion for Christ to demonstrate just how secure Paul actually is. First, we said Christ provides. Second, Christ protects. In this last section, we see how Christ prevails. Gallio, the leading representative of Roman authority in this region, Greece, um, he doesn't really give the prosecution against Paul the time of day, does he? He pretty much just dismisses the case. Uh, Gallio, by the way, is kind of just interesting trivia. is well known to historians uh, from sources outside the Bible. As it turns out, he was actually the younger brother of the famous Stoic writer Seneca, if you ever heard of him. Um, interesting point of contact, showing that one of many evidences in the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is intending to write history. That is his purpose, to write true history about real events, not some sort of spiritual fable. So uh, Paul's opponents uh, bring him before this Roman, Gallio, much like the leaders of Jerusalem brought Jesus before Pilate. I don't think that resemblance is an accident. Uh, But don't forget, um, Pilate, like Gallio, actually rendered a verdict of innocent. I find no guilt in this man, Pilate said in the Gospel of Luke. Of course, he went on to crucify Jesus anyway because that's what the people wanted. Uh, Gallio uh, does the opposite. Uh, Like Pilate, he can see this man is not a rebel against Roman rule. Their accusation is that he's persuading people to worship God uh, contrary to the law, and Gallio construes construes that to mean contrary to Jewish law. And so he says, I'm not going to make a judgment about your law. Go and take care of it yourselves. Now, we shouldn't uh, see Gallio really as the hero of this episode. He's not being presented to us as a as an exemplary um, civil magistrate, an exemplary judge. For example, it was not just for him to turn a blind eye in verse 17 when the crowds decided to beat up the leader of the synagogue, uh, who I, I take that to be the, uh, the representative of those who came uh, attacking Paul. 
Some people think Sosthenes was a Christian being beaten up here. I don't, I don't think he was, at least not at this point. Paul does mention a Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 verse 1, but I'm pretty sure that's either a different Sosthenes or at, the, at most the same man years later after some pretty major changes in his life. I think what's happening here is that Paul's accusers are experiencing the tables being turned on them. They're experiencing what they hoped would happen to Paul. Um, we should acknowledge that Galilee was not doing his job properly. This is unjust for him to turn a blind eye to this kind of mob violence. But we should also realize, on the other hand, that, that, that there is an authority at work here higher than Gallio's. That King Jesus is ultimately the one who has turned the tables on Paul's accusers. The Lord Jesus has kept his promise. The Lord Jesus has vindicated his messenger. And this paves the way, then, for many more days of ministry. Uh, verse 18, where we'll pick up next time. Now, as we just think of, in closing about... Um, some of the implications of this portion of Paul's ministry for us, for our church today. Um, I want to think back to that promise at the heart of the passage. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Uh, so there are some people who think that if you have a, a very robust view, as we do, of the sovereignty of God in salvation, election, predestination, and so on, um, that that will somehow take away your motivation for evangelism. You know, oh, if, if God's already chosen who's going to be saved, then we don't really need to do anything because they're going to be saved one way. Not according to the book of Acts. The book of Acts gives us both a very high view of the, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of his chosen people, and also presents that sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ as the greatest motivation there could possibly be for evangelism and mission for the church. The reason Jesus gives Paul for going on speaking, not being afraid, not being silent, the reason is that he already has a group of people ready to hear, ready to believe in this city. And all Paul has to do is faithfully serve up that message to them which Jesus has primed their hearts to hear. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says in John 10, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is why in Acts 13, a few chapters ago, we read that wonderful statement, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. See, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty in particular of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name and has from all eternity. That is perhaps the greatest motivation in the scriptures for missions and evangelism, the church and for individual Christians. It's not, oh, they're going to be saved anyway, so we don't need to do anything. God already decided. No, the, the point of this is Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, listen, Resurrection OPC, listen, I have sheep out there in this town. And they are my sheep. But they haven't heard my message yet. That's your job. I lived for them. I died for them. I carried the weight of their sins on the cross to earn for them forgiveness and eternal life. 
but they don't know me yet in their living present experience and they need to know. So go, go get them. Go bring them home. What a, what a joyful duty we have to be Christ's instruments of bringing his sheep home. To be part of Christ's unfailing mission to gather his beloved people into the family of God. See, this is not just about Paul. The Lord Jesus has people in this town. The Lord Jesus has people at this university. The Lord Jesus has people in your neighborhood. His people are out there and they need to be brought home. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are we so afraid of what they might think if we bring up spiritual things, what they might say if they find out what we really believe, how awkward it might be. (laughs) Think of the dangers Paul was facing. Compare that to the things that spook you and me from having these kinds of conversations. Why don't we go on speaking? Why are we silent? We have the promise of Christ's presence just as Paul did. I am with you, he says. We have the promise of ultimate success as Christ counts success. And this is crucial. We have the promise of Christ's protection until our part in his mission is finished. We are immortal until our master's work with us is done. And so we can confidently say, Hebrews 13, 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent until your master's work with you is done. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this precious promise that you gave to Paul and his crucial time of need in his ministry. We thank you there's a promise that endures for us today. We thank you that you have brought us into your family sovereignly, powerfully, because we belong to you. We were your sheep. And Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness and zeal and joy in carrying your message to others as your instruments to bring the remainder of your sheep into the fold. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.